traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And this week, The Economist asks, what's new about our morality? The only thing that allows us to function in a society are its ethical standards. I'm talking to the American author Eden Collinsworth about her new book, Behaving Badly. In it, she investigates the new morality in politics, sex and business. And she enlists both the famous and infamous to unravel how we make moral choices in an ethically flexible era where technology is challenging the old mores. Whether it's dating, whether it's the manner in which we communicate, how we feel about institutional morality, all of that has changed as a result of technology. So, Eden, in the foreword to your book, you write, I'm not an ethicist or a social scientist. This is not an academic debate on the topic of morality, but an adventurous search for its modern day relevance. Tell me, what is new about our moral thinking? Well, what's new is that it's far more flexible. In my parents' time, morality was a rule book, and most of the moral understandings were implicit. Certainly, to a large degree, those morals were instilled in me. But my son, who's in his late 20s, in fact, has an entirely broader moral landscape. And so his morality is probably shaped more by the profound changes that have occurred within the last 20 years than than, um, instilled by by his parents. Give me an example. Technology has changed everything, whether it's dating, whether it's the manner in which we communicate, how we feel about institutional morality, all of that has changed as a result of technology. Let's go back to some of the old rule book and and Immanuel Kant and the golden rule. Do to others what you would have done to you. That still would seem to apply. Isn't it true that the fundamental things still apply to a moral universe? I think that's right. There are these fundamentals. And in fact, you know, they're reflected in the seven deadly sins, although who among us hasn't partaken in and several of those sins. I, I would suggest that the politicians, in fact, probably have touched on all seven. I would hope that there are these fundamental moral reference points. But I think that what's important to understand is that morality is a set of personal beliefs and ethics are, are the expectations and the sanctions enforced by a, a given society at a given time. Often what is acceptable in terms of morality or one owns personal set of beliefs comes into direct conflict with what is ethical. So, for example, in America, at any rate, a lawyer is ethically bound to defend his or her client, no matter to what degree that person has has offended uh, his or her morality. And, and so what you're seeing now, I think... Um, is the relaxation of what were moral absolutes in in a previous generation because of the set of circumstances. You took some risks in the course of excavating modern morality. You invited a convicted murderer into your flat. What did you take away from that encounter? 
I was aware of the fact that this man had killed two people, but I began a correspondence with him. And because he expressed himself a certain way, I concluded that it must have been a crime of passion. He murdered a certain way for a certain reason. And in fact, it was completely the opposite. This man murdered for money. They were two separate murders. They were incredibly brutal. One involved a strangulation. The other one, a man was bludgeoned to death. And so I didn't know this until actually the day before he he came to my flat to speak to me about morality. I was interested in the correlation between character and morality, and I thought that of all the people he could speak on that subject. What interested me about this man was that he was not pinned to either of these two murders. He escaped to France and he joined the Foreign Legion. And in a way that you could not make up in fiction, he then, you know, disappeared for five years within the Legion and he became a great leader of men. And his point to me was that because he was introduced to a rigorous schedule, to the responsibility of other men, to the expectations that were held, that he started to think about the moral implications of what he had done. And as a result, he decided to give himself up. The The fact is that he became a moral agent when he decided to give himself up and he accepted the consequences, which were 23 years in prison, the first year of which was in solitary confinement. So in that way, he felt that he had during the course of his years in the Foreign Legion, he was, for the first time ever, able to acquire scruples, which in fact were the foundation of his decision. And that then spoke to his character, and that actually answered the issue that I had in a very unexpected way, whether there was a correlation or is a correlation between character and morality. You describe a meeting with a Holocaust survivor in the book. What did you take away from it in terms of moral conundrums? His story was quite remarkable. This was a gentleman who now is in his early 90s who as a child survived not one but two Nazi work camps and escaped from both. But during the course of his experience, he made it very clear to me that it had nothing to do with morality. It had to do with survival. And so, in fact, his survival required him to be immoral in his choices. He certainly became very sophisticated in reading, uh, you know, the the change of of wind, even within the confines of the other prisoners. So he, he was required to do things at that time that in any other time would have been clearly immoral. Does that make him an immoral man? I I don't think so. It forced him to acts of immorality during a period that most people can't imagine. That would imply, if we take off the framing of the Holocaust, which is something so specific and huge, but that would imply that morality is perhaps less fixed than we would like it to be. So when there are great pressures upon me, I can be less moral up to what point? I think that's an individual question. And I think that what keeps us in order and and in line and, and functioning as a group are ethical and moral expectations. The only thing that allows us to function in a society are its ethical standards. But That said, I know that there are circumstantial implications to morality, and one can't get around that. He could have chosen to behave morally and and expired as a result. That was his choice. Philosophers, scholars, writers, thinkers, and 
Now, the civilians have been thinking about these questions for centuries. I'm curious about what it is in your own background that made you decide to have a go at this. What prompted me was living in China. About five years ago, I moved there with a kind of mad idea of writing a book for Chinese on Western business deportment. And it it became very apparent to me immediately that my moral set of values were completely inapplicable among the Chinese. Doing business in China, you just literally are stepping through the rabbit hole um, because it appears to have the hallmarks of Western capitalism. But in fact, it's functioning on a almost a Confucian sense of right and wrong. And so, for example, in the West, with a contract, once you sign a contract, and usually if there's an on-signing payment, which codifies and memorializes the contract, it basically reflects the terms which both parties have agreed. And that is not always the case in China, most especially when it's services and it doesn't have to do with hardcore commodities, where they're very comfortable thinking that this is the continuation of a dialogue. So as a Westerner, you can cry foul and insist that this is unfair. And basically what you're facing is somebody who believes that there are many ways of being right and not very many ways of being wrong. I guess that you had to adjust some ways of thinking about morality. Did you find that your own behavior changed? Well, I was more willing to accept the fact that the new morality is more flexible. I recognize the fact that younger people have a wider vista and so they're not entirely enamored by institutional morality. So, for example, you know, if you think of the church's role now, it feels as though it's kind of several musical steps behind the beat. In the year that I wrote the book, um, you know, there is Ireland, which is predominantly Catholic, being the first country to vote for the legality of gay marriage. Also, if you ask people of a certain age about their take on Edward Snowden, um, my generation might insist that he was immoral in what he did. But if you ask younger people, in fact, they think he did absolutely the right thing morally. And in fact, he used to be respected. Isn't that just old fashioned relativism? I mean, it may come in the guise of hacking computers or uh, telling the public what you think they've got a right to know. But there's always been moral relativism. I've always been convinced that what I do in the name of my cause is perfectly justified. You know, the old 1960s trope about one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. What's changed on that? What has changed is that never have we been so interconnected in the world. That has changed, and that has changed dramatically in the last 15 and 20 years. And I am the first to admit that I have taken full advantage of that change. I'm, you know, a citizen of the world, so to speak, and I have benefited from that. I have not paid attention, admittedly, to the Many, many people who, in fact, have suffered from that. And if you think of politics today, you have seen now the reminder to the rest of us that that has occurred, whether it's Brexit or what supported Donald Trump were the people who are, quite honestly, far more concerned about salaries and paychecks and jobs they've lost than any implications of his morality. I think that you would find the people who voted for Donald Trump, in fact, are more concerned about their financial well-being and security than they are on what they consider to be the subtleties of morality. If Donald Trump fails, it will be the failing in policy, not because he's an immoral person. Why don't you think he's an immoral person? Well, I personally think he's an immoral person. I think that he is 
somebody who's gratuitously cruel and also has taken advantage of the enormous income gaps in, in America. So I think his methods, in fact, are extremely immoral. But we've had private immoral or morally dubious behavior before in the White House in living memory. I mean, you think Bill Clinton was immoral? That's true, but it doesn't come on a daily basis. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's interesting. So, it's, so it's, Bill yeah, Clinton, if he yeah, was immoral, yes, wasn't immoral yeah. on a daily well, basis. Yeah, I mean, it bubbled up, you know, with issues that were fairly sporadic. But the fact is that you feel as though it's the death of a thousand blunt immoral blows. <laughs> I think that's the point. You touched earlier on the transformative nature of technology, Science and technology taken together, you could think, well, here's just a guidebook, you know, go and live in this way. The app allows you to do this. The science tells you to be a bit careful about the planet and be more vigilant about climate change. Is that enough? Where does the moral self come from at a time when we seem to be given quite a lot of instructions or guidelines, but not such a deep sense of belief? One of the people I interviewed was a neuroscientist who walked me through the neurological implications of screen technology. And it's now not at all unusual for somebody to be spending nine hours a day in front of a screen. And this is happening at an earlier and earlier age. I've seen, as you walk by cafes, you know, babies in strollers who cannot hold themselves upright, but in fact have been given a screen to keep themselves occupied. And the point is that it doesn't make you a less moral person. But what it does, according to this neuroscientist, is that the frontal lobes, which act to put things in perspective, which allow you to move towards a more empathetic state, so to speak. All of that area of the brain now is dealing with two-dimensional you know, interactions rather than the holistic. So here you and I are speaking, you know, I'm watching your facial gestures, the nuance of your body language and the intonation of your voice. And all of that disappears to a large degree on screen. And so her point, and one that I would underscore, is that empathy is an acquired skill and technology is lessening the opportunity to develop that skill. And that is probably why people move very quickly to an angered state of expression on the internet. I mean, if you look at social media, it moves, it ratchets very quickly into something personal. And I also think that empathy is a choice. We can choose to what degree we are empathetic. And although the the world has changed profoundly and younger people have a far more flexible sense of morality, the idea of empathy still is the cornerstone. And I think that's a, that's a choice. I have to ask, have you changed your mind about anything in the course of this stroll through an intriguing number of moral gardens across the world? Well, I'm not quite sure I've changed my mind because I am, I'm afraid, you know, wedged in my moral old guard absolutes. And I still, I'm sure, move very quickly to be judgmental. However, I am now aware of the fact that around me, there is a far more flexible moral landscape. And the fact is that no matter what the politicians promise, our world will continue to have a human churn to it. And I think that it's imperative that we look up from our mirror in front of us and acknowledge the fact that other people have a different set of moral values. Eden Collinsworth, thank you very much.
If you have any thoughts on what constitutes behaving badly or not behaving badly today, do put them in an email and send them our way to radio at economist.com or you could tweet us at Economist Radio. And don't forget to pick up this week's issue of the newspaper or you can find us online at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.